the sheet music itself, while that can be a great tool along the way in, in um, communicating some of these emotions and feelings at the piano or whatever your instrument may be, uh, ultimately it's, it's what, we, what we sound out is, is what is the main way of communicating with our audiences. I'm Ben Capolo, and welcome to All Keyed Up. Thanks so much for listening. Today, I spoke with Dr. Mario Ajero. Dr. Mario Ajero is professor of piano at Stephen F. Austin State University, where he teaches applied piano lessons, group piano classes, and piano pedagogy, and serves as the keyboard area coordinator. Internationally recognized as an authority in incorporating technology in piano pedagogy and music education, he has presented at every major piano pedagogy conference in the United States and has been invited to perform and present in Australia, Brazil, Canada, China, and Germany. Dr. Harrow's engagements include being a keynote presenter at the Australasian Piano Pedagogy Conference, featured presenter at the Summer Summit at the Royal Conservatory, and being invited to present on technology to teach keyboard remotely for the Peabody Institute at Johns Hopkins University. Dr. Harrow has authored articles for Piano Magazine and American Music Teacher, and has presented at the Music Teachers National Association, National Conference, and National Conference on Keyboard Pedagogy. He holds bachelor's and master's degrees in music from Temple University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and earned his PhD in music education with a concentration in piano pedagogy from the University of Oklahoma. In this episode, we talked about the pedagogical foundation of teaching piano in a way that is not rigidly focused on note reading at the expense of other musical skills, and we talked about some ways to use technology to facilitate those other kinds of learning. I hope you enjoy. Mario, thanks so much for joining on the podcast today. Well, thank you for having me, Ben. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you. Today, I want to talk about some ways that in your resources, you've gone beyond kind of a rigid over-reliance on music literacy and have branched out into some other areas, often with the help of technology. Although, like everyone, you, of course, believe that music literacy is important. In the past, you've described an over-reliance on music literacy as to, in effect, quote, handcuffing students. Can you talk about what you mean by handcuffing? Yeah, uh, I can't even recall when you maybe have heard that term handcuffing. And I, I, YouTube webinar. Oh, what, oh, was it on one of those webinars there? Okay, great. Um, probably where it stemmed out of was just that I just felt like there was just this really restrictive type of imagery that uh, kind of goes with when I see students sitting at the piano and they're looking, oh, what, what note is that? And it's uh, every good boy does, you know, trying to go through this whole process. And I listened to, you know, one of your um, uh, episodes with Marvin Blick and staff, and he's someone that I really admire and uh, have really looked up to and has been really influential in my, the way that I approach teaching piano. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think uh, the gist of one, one of his primary goals with students is to communicate or uh, uh, express something at, when you're making music, particularly at our primary instrument, which is the piano. And when I see students uh, uh, and teachers also um, uh, instilling this whole over-reliance on just trying to figure out what note this is and that uh, the quarter note gets one beat and half note gets two beats and the dotted quarter note is, uh, the dot adds one half the value of that (laughs) note. 
you think about all these things from a from a, from a student's perspective, how overwhelming that can be, and how much that can be like, oh, this is some particular task that I that I don't know if I could really accomplish what I want to communicate here at the piano. So that's kind of maybe where that particular term came from was that I found uh, through my experience that I think if we move a little bit further away and not totally disregard the importance of being able to identify the notes on the staff, but more or less establish the the relationships, the intervallic reading is, is definitely something that I've come to um, appreciate a whole lot more in my experience with teaching. Um, but also that uh, music is an art in the uh, manipulation of sound and that it isn't really necessarily what's on the page that is the music itself, but it's what we actually produce, um, whether it be from the instrument or singing through our voice, is really uh, is the real music. And I think that's ultimately um, uh, what we want to achieve. And I think the sheet music itself, while that can be a great tool along the way in, in um, communicating some of these emotions and feelings at the piano or whatever your instrument may be, uh, ultimately it's it's what we what we sound out is is what is the main way of communicating with our audiences. Yeah, and I think that's why I also am sometimes weary of these mnemonics is it's kind of two layers of removed from our actual musical experience. As you are pointing out, sheet music in of itself already kind of is an indirect way of getting at ultimately the oral way we experience music. So then to take from the sheet music a mnemonic device adds yet another indirectness. And so we're just removing the students further and further from mm -hmm. how we actually want them to experience music. And so with a lot of today's interview, I want to talk about how we can kind of go beyond an over-reliance on music literacy. And this works differently for different ages. So one way of teaching pieces without an overemphasis on note reading that you've become very famous for is these YouTube videos that teach pieces by rote. And there's an overhead camera view of your fingers and also these very helpful cartoon kind of graphics of piano <laughs> where whatever note you're playing at any given time lights up. Um, admittedly, you do display the sheet music at times, but that is not what is principally driving the learning process in these YouTube videos. So can you talk about some of your pedagogical thinking behind these tutorial videos that you've made and how in some ways they can be more helpful than perhaps some other YouTube videos where they're simply just an audio recording of the song while the sheet music scrolls by? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. No, that was some kind of experiment. Again, I think back to about maybe 2005 or 2006, before I got my job here at Stephen F. Austin State University, I was unemployed and uh, I was finishing up my dissertation at the University of Oklahoma. And um, I really didn't have a lot uh, of uh, creative outlet to to, to do anything. Uh, I mean, I had some students, but uh, uh, YouTube was starting to become a thing. I was experimenting around with podcasting and then I felt kind of limited in the audio podcasts as far as like trying to teach a lesson yeah. over an audio podcast. That'd I'm not hard. sure how, how I uh, would accomplish that. But then uh, I, I would see on YouTube, which was in its infancies back in 2005, 2006, and I saw some videos of some you know, uh, uh, of some people <laughs> uh, uh, trying to do these tutorial videos. And I felt like, wow, I think I could do maybe a clearer job or maybe do a better service. And I saw that like all these different um, uh, uh, views that they were getting. And then I tried to do some 
popular songs here, things that I think that if anyone was just kind of searching on YouTube and they wouldn't say, hey, I want to know how to play this particular song and try to present it in, in such a way. I, I saw that as a particular uh, interesting pedagogical challenge. Mm -hmm. And then um, I was really surprised at the uh, positive feedback that I got from it here. And back in 2005, 2006, it wasn't even really that fancy back then. It was just uh, uh, using iMovie and uh, uh, using the, 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 what was it called? The Ken Burns effect to try to <laughs> move, move, move uh, sheet music across the screen in synchronization. It was really a tedious process here, but uh, a lot of, I got a lot of feedback from people that said, hey, uh, I just wanted to thank you for putting together that video. It inspired me to uh, go out and buy a keyboard and try it out. Or I hear all these stories about like, oh, I used to take piano lessons here, but then uh, I stopped because it wasn't fun anymore. And then you're, I came across your video and uh, it, it inspired me to get back at the piano. So <laughs> I thought it was definitely worth it to invest certain technology to try to make it even better and, and show them what, what is, what you could potentially do, or at least try to, um, uh, teach them in a much more efficient manner than what I had originally started off with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that um, thing you're describing where a student, a potential student watches one of your videos and that inspires them to want to come to the piano actually happened in my studio. So I had a teenage student one time come to me um, and I asked him in our first lesson, have you do you have any piano experience? And he said, well, I've been watching some YouTube videos. And I said, which YouTube videos? And he pulled up a video from you. So, and that gained a student for me. So thank you for that. Oh, so wow. I can give firsthand experience that that is a real phenomenon. You mentioned um, using pop music and a lot of your YouTube videos do use pop music. So I want to talk about using pop music a little bit. A lot of pop songs are rhythmically very, very complex. And if you try to look at them written out, often they're at a rhythmic reading level that would be hard even for some of our most advanced students. And so what you do a lot of in your videos is you start with teaching by rote or and using the students prior familiarity with the song as kind of a guide to help them figure out the rhythms. But then at the end of the video, you display the sheet music. This is what you do with falling slowly. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk about this approach to teaching pieces where you start with an oral experience that may or may not be driven by technology and then introduce sheet music after the fact? Is this something you do with your private students as well? Yeah, I, I would say so. Um, as far as it, it, a lot of it is, again, rooted in my experiences with teaching my younger children mm -hmm. uh, at the beginning where they couldn't um, read sheet music at that particular age. Um, and, uh, but I knew that they could create those sounds at the, at the, uh, at the piano. And then after the fact, then we could always come back and revisit it. And then they can make those more meaningful connections here. Mm -hmm. So, and, and again, that also can stem out from the, uh, Francis Clark, um, yeah. uh, uh uh, notion of that uh, music is sound and then maybe letting them experience it by feel and then you could start introducing okay well these are the symbols and then finally the name because for the longest time when I first started teaching I always approached things backwards here like this is a quarter note okay or, or, or today we're going to talk about quarter notes and this is what a quarter note looks like okay now, can you tap these quarter notes here? And yeah. and then here, now listen to what a quarter note. And it was all backwards, yeah. at least as, as far as now in retrospect, looking at 
um, how I try to introduce concepts, and I try to instill that with my pedagogy students as well, that you have to start with the sound first there, um, because uh, I've had teachers before that said, told me, oh, don't listen to this recording of Horowitz or Trifonoff or anyone uh, 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 playing, um, because that will influence your, um, your, your interpretation of the piece. Uh, I'm, I, I don't really follow that anymore here. I think we all have to have some type of exposure or some kind of um, uh, experience with with the particular piece that we want to replicate or interpret and make it our own uh, before we uh, go into this kind of like blank slate of just like, well, that's what's on the score and I'm just going to follow exactly what's 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 written on the page. So yeah, for sure. I, I encourage my own private students. Yeah. Listen to this great recording. You know, I'll, I'll say, listen to like three different pianists playing this here. I might recommend one and I might ask them to uh, uh, search out for two other pianists here. And then w that might be even a, a point of discussion for our next lesson, we might say like, okay, so which was your favorite here? And we can kind of discuss oh, that. And, and then it starts to become their own little interpretation. You know, it, it, nothing comes from, uh, I mean, I, I shouldn't say our, our musical choices don't come from uh, a vacuum of, of nothingness. It's, it, it really has to be influenced in some way here. And, and that's kind of my job as a teacher is to try to facilitate those particular musical experiences so that hopefully they can, um, come up with their own interpretation that is very convincing. Hmm. Now, talking a little bit more about your private students, you're in an interesting position in that you have students who are your own private students who you see every week, presumably, and have kind of a long-term curriculum. And then there are the students, I guess, who watch your YouTube videos. And mm -hmm. these YouTube videos are, in a sense, kind of one-offs. I mean, there's not necessarily... Yeah. Um, they're discrete units without a, a long-term incremental curriculum. So does the fact that your YouTube videos are kind of individual entities in of themselves change your thinking behind how you would teach a piece versus the private students of yours who you have over a longer period of time? Uh, as far as like the long-term planning, you know, I, I think you're right that the YouTube videos that I usually put out are just for that one specific goal. Although I tried to throw in a little bit of music theory there that will hopefully inspire them to like, oh, I've, I've played that chord before and I see how that relates to this other piece that I, I'm playing. Um, so maybe there is some of those happy accidents there. But as far as uh, my own private students, it's a little bit more thought out as far as like, okay, well, I'm preparing them for this uh, Royal Conservatory yeah. level seven exam here. And I know I want them to go out into this um, area or maybe a better parallel to this is my group piano students here at uh, Stephen F. Austin State University. I teach a lot of music majors whose primary instrument is not piano. They're usually trumpet majors, voice, voice majors, sound recording technology majors, whose primary instrument is not piano. And um, what I do is, uh, in addition to the, well, actually, we meet twice a week in class, although we've been doing a hybrid of both face-to-face uh, -face and Zoom during COVID-19. But um, I also supplement that with specific videos here that address a particular quiz or proficiency task that they're meant to uh, demonstrate their 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 competency on and uh, I think a lot of yeah my YouTube videos um, uh, uh, 
helped model those to address those uh, specific needs. But with those particular students, we still have these longer term goals um, that maybe is a little bit different from the audience that I'm targeting with the uh, YouTube videos on my channel. Yeah. Part of why I'm asking is I could imagine hypothetically another piano teacher could watch one of your videos and have a reaction of like, oh, well, if the only goal is to teach this song in 10 minutes and these aren't long-term students, then this road approach makes sense. But in my studio, I have them for longer term, so I want to place more of an emphasis on note reading and de-emphasize rote. I can't imagine that would be your approach with your private students. Right? No, no. Yeah. Uh, there's definitely a, a higher emphasis on, you know, particularly with the class piano students that I have, mm -hmm. that they're able to sight read effectively. But I think... In order for them to sight read effectively, they have to have specific physical movements at, mm. at the keyboard that they are used to so that when they see it on page, then they know, oh, mm. then that, that triggers off, oh, well, that's just an Alberti bass pattern, or this mm -hmm. is... Uh, this is a, uh, a a different broken chord pattern, or this is a scale like passage, and I've done my scale. So uh, uh, the, they have to have those experiences uh, independent of like um, uh, uh, of you introducing it. Okay, here it is on the page. Read it, and then and then we'll we'll discuss it afterwards here. But mm -hmm. I try to do enough preparation with rote teaching prior to uh, them coming across it in the music that they're reading. Yeah, it goes back to the concept we keep bringing up in this interview about experiencing the concept before providing a symbol for the concept. And I think that's true whether it's a long-term student or whether it's just someone watching an episode on YouTube. Um, although you're very well known kind of as a music tech guru, I'm interested in during your private lessons, when you do teach note reading, do you... you do you use any kind of apps or technology programs to facilitate this? Or is the portions of your lessons when you work on note reading a little bit more in pencil and paper and then the road and improv and pop parts are where you integrate technology? Mm -hmm. No, I, I try to in integrate the technology whenever I possibly can, um, or at least when I know that it, it can definitely help. Um, uh, you you went, mentioned some webinars. I've done some webinars for Joytunes and their Piano Maestro app. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, both of my kids uh, played around with that Piano Maestro app and yeah. a, a number of my uh, private students also used that Piano Maestro app when they were younger as well. Um, but, uh, and I found actually uh, there was an interesting thing. I had one particular student, he's, he's moved away uh, since, um, uh, uh, since I uh, worked with him with Piano Maestro, but uh, uh, he wasn't the greatest reader at the piano and he would really struggle and he would start and stop a whole lot in the middle of reading a new piece or playing a piece. Um, and uh, when we, uh, when I got him using Piano Maestro where the notes kind of like scroll across the screen and that can be quite disorienting having the notes kind of float across the screen yeah. here. And I did, I wasn't really a big fan of it here, but what I did notice when I had my uh, students play with that particular app was instead of them always looking up and down, up and down uh, from music, uh, music desk to the keys, music desk to the keys, instead of them kind of looking up and down, up and down, they started to keep their eyes fixated on the screen, mm -hmm. on, on the music that was kind of floating across here and the whole gamification on the Piano Maestro app 
uh, where they reward you with points for yeah. for playing the notes right at at the right time when it hits that lightsaber thing <laughs> at the at the left part of the screen yes. and turns into stars. Um, uh, that was very. Uh, they were so fixated on that there that they stopped looking down at their hands. And I know from various research studies that the piano students who usually keep their eyes on the music. Uh, more so than looking up and down, tended to score much better in sight reading tests, or at least tended to develop better sight reading skills. So um, this whole connection of the music uh, uh, on the screen, I think, has been uh, uh, there's there's definitely something there that should be explored in much greater detail for sure. I think uh, would be a good research study. Um, there's another application that I use uh, that you may have seen in some of my videos uh, called Home Concert Extreme. Uh, I actually and, don't know what that is. Can you talk about that? Yeah, sure. Home Concert Extreme is uh, it's a MIDI application. It uses MIDI technology. So you need a MIDI-capable piano um, or a digital piano that sends MIDI data back and forth. Um, and um, rather than like uh, Piano Maestro, it's, uh, it's using the iPad's microphone. So it's very limited in how much it can assess your particular performance uh, because it can only do what the microphone picks mm -hmm. up here. But when the um, when your piano is directly connected into either your computer or iPad, um, then it can sense all the performance data that is being sent out from the piano, um, uh, regardless of how thick the chords are or how complicated the rhythms may be here. So Home Concert Extreme is a neat program um, because uh, it, it, it can assess a student's performance or at least uh, kind of, it has these three modes. One of them is a learn mode, where like uh, it will have a MIDI accompaniment that we uh, that will make the music sound much more full. Mm -hmm. So, particularly with younger students, when they're playing something like a a, a, a really simple monophonic um, folk tune, it's not the most rewarding musical experience uh, in the world to them to just be playing this one monophonic line. But then when you have a whole orchestra or a band playing behind it there, then it definitely feels like a much more satisfying musical experience. So the learn mode in Hum Concert Extreme, what it does, it stops the orchestra or stops the band until they play the right notes here. So it, And then it lights up on the, uh, on the virtual keyboard on the screen. These are the notes that you missed. That's what you need to play, and then they can work through it here as well. And then from there, then they can start to change to different modes where it doesn't stop, but then they start to simulate a collaborative performance, almost like a concerto, with uh, playing with an, uh, a backup orchestra where mm. if you make a mistake, you can't go back and fix it here. You just got to keep on going here. And yeah. I've used that to try to instill that sense of, uh, or at least simulate a collaborative performance where they have to, if you messed up here, you just got to keep that pulse, mm -hmm. keep on going and keep the music moving forward here. Yeah, that does sound in some ways similar to Piano Maestro in the sense that you can set it so that it freezes when you mess up or you can set it that it's a continuous tempo the whole time and you play with a backing track. But I can see this additional extra advantage of having a direct MIDI plugin as opposed to Piano Maestro, which is just through the air kind of. Um, mm -hmm. So I have to look into that. A little mm -hmm. bit more. I had uh, Becky Laurent on this podcast, who's an yep. education specialist at JoyTunes, and she talked a lot, a lot of what you're describing. And I think what you were saying before about Piano Maestro, forcing the students to not always be looking up and then looking down, in a way underscores what, at least in my opinion, is 
frankly, the superiority of an app like Piano Maestro or the home concert extreme that you just described, as opposed to the old fashioned way of a metronome where a metronome doesn't give you any visual stimuli. So nothing is stopping you from looking down. Right, uh, right. One of the uh, uh, things that Home Concert Extreme has that um, Piano Maestro doesn't have, it has this uh, really neat feature called Perform Mode. And you could actually have these um, uh, full-blown like uh, Mozart and Beethoven piano concertos programmed into it. And um, I've had my uh, students, uh, including my son, uh, a few years back, he got accepted to the Aspen Music Festival to oh. uh, uh, to um, uh, to attend there. And congratulations to him! Yeah, thanks. Um, and they have this concerto competition, and um, you know, I I, I accompanied him, but uh, 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 from time to time uh, at home here. But uh, a lot of times, sometimes with my teaching schedule, it didn't always work out with us here. But he would practice with the Home Concert Extreme program. Um, both in the learn mode when he's first uh, initially learning the Mozart concerto that was uh, uh, for the competition. And he would also use the jam mode, which would keep a steady pulse throughout so that even if he messes up, he has this sense of keep on going here. And then there's uh, what's called a perform mode where actually the home concert extreme application will analyze the performer's playing. And if the performer slows down, then the orchestra slows down. And oh, the, that's cool. And then if the performer speeds up, then the perform then the orchestra speeds up. So it's kind of constantly tracking their motion. So it feels like a much more organic and yeah. more collaborative type of experience here. And you can in, uh, use more retard, natural retardandos and accelerandos and rubato to make that. And, and he didn't win that competition at Aspen, but because uh, there's quite a high caliber of players yeah. there. But he was able to hold his own there. I thought he did really well here. And I, uh, um, and, uh, I think uh, a lot of that can be attributed to his experiences using applications like Home Concert Extreme to uh, when you don't have an orchestra or you don't have a second pianist to always rehearse with, then this kind of helps him prepare for those uh, particular moments. Well, that sounds really helpful that this app kind of spans the full spectrum from freezing every time you get the wrong note to adapting to your tempo if you slow down or just continuing a steady tempo no matter what you do. It seems like it's helpful across all levels. That's very interesting about this idea of when you slow down or speed up, that it makes the backing track follow you. That sounds very complicated mm -hmm. to maneuver. Yeah, no, the, they, they put a lot of uh, different algorithms into it here. Um, I think Frank Weinstock, who used to be the um, uh, head of the piano area at University of Cincinnati Conservatory, um, I think he is kind of like the brains behind it uh, as well. And there's also, you know, a lot of teachers say, well, what if you want to slow down, but then you want the uh, orchestra to stop or... Yeah, or like uh, you back know, phrasing, I think is what we call phrasing. that in the biz. Yeah, there you go. Um, <laughs> uh, there are ways in which you can kind of pre-program those specific moments in the score here. So it is definitely uh, one of the more flexible uh, applications that I've uh, found useful. It's probably been one of the most valuable applications that I've had in my piano studio, in addition to uh, Classroom Maestro, which was the, uh, it's actually by the same company, Time Warp Technologies. Um, and they make that little, what you call the uh, animated keyboard that you see me use in my tutorial videos as well here. So um, uh, they've, they've, they've put out some really great products that have been really uh, valuable for my teaching over the past, I would say, 15 or 16 years. Well, thank you for all of those recommendations. That's very helpful. And I myself am going to look into some of those as well. Um, before we go, can you tell everyone a little bit about what you're up to now and how our listeners can learn more about you? 
<laughs> yeah, sure. No, um, I, uh, uh, I'm, uh, well, what I'm right up to now is in the middle of finals. And, <laughs> Uh-oh. And the end of the semester trying to wrap some uh, details up here as well. But I've uh, been really having a great time here teaching at Stephen F. Austin State University. And uh, uh, if there's anyone who is interested in uh, coming to uh, major in piano or uh, study piano pedagogy with me here at Stephen F. Austin State University, they can go to our website at music.sfasu.edu. And of course, they could always try to keep up with uh, the various uh, 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 uses of technology. Um, if you don't mind, if, if your uh, listeners don't mind also weeding through some of the uh, uh, silly videos that I have with my kids on my YouTube channel. <laughs> um, uh, my YouTube channel is at youtube.com slash Mario Ahero. So you can... I'll definitely uh, link to that in the show notes. Yep, yeah, sure. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much, Mario, for coming on the podcast today. All right. Well, thank you, Ben, and you have a great day. You too. Thank you. If you have any feedback about the episode you just heard or about the podcast in general, feel free to reach out to me through the contact page at www.bencapolo.com. Thank you.